My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here, and I think approaching our text for today, Hebrews chapter 9, with that in mind will be very helpful to us. Looking at it to ask, what is the relationship that this passage is telling us that we have with God? We'll look at the double helix, if you will. Who says that? A guy from Australia apparently can get away with that. We'll look at the wharf and the woof of Scripture this morning. Um, no, but before we do, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. We'll look at it in just a minute. But before we do, I want you to take just a minute where you're at, and I want you to ask yourselves two questions. The first one is, what is your, your ask this to yourself, define this for yourself, what is your current relationship with God like? Take just a moment where you're at. You could write it down or just think about it for yourself. How would you define your current relationship with God? And think about what it actually is, not what you want it to be or what you think the person next to you thinks it should be. How would you define your relationship with God right now, present in this moment? Now, secondly, take, take another moment where you are and consider your conscience. Consider your conscience, that little voice in our heads that tells us what's right and wrong and makes us feel guilty for what's right what's wrong and good for what's right. Take a moment, consider your conscience, and make an honest assessment of your conscience, asking yourself, does your conscience feel clean or does it feel guilty? Does your conscience right now in this moment or kind of in this stage of life, generally does it feel clean or does it feel guilty? Now, I ask these two questions knowing the answer for most of you, because I am a human myself, and I've done a lot of counsel and ministering to and working with people as a pastor. I get to talk about people, I, got to, I get to talk with people about their spiritual lives often. And so being a human and being a pastor, I know that the majority of us in this room feel that God is distant, Okay? So I ask you to think about your current relationship with God. I know that most of us feel, in general, like God is rather distant to us, like he's rather removed from us, like he's rather different than us. And I know that most of us, from being a human and having my own conscience and pastoring and working with people who have consciences, I know that most of us in this room feel a sense of, of guilt in our conscience. We feel rather dirty in our conscience. We, we went to that same sin last night. We keep thinking the same negative thoughts towards a person. We keep doing these things that our conscience knows are wrong and we feel guilty about it. That's the majority of us in this room. But Hebrews 9 has good news for us. For those of us who feel distant from God, and those of us who have a guilty conscience, Hebrews 9 has incredibly good news for us today. Let's look at it. Before I spoil the good news, let's just read this passage and then we'll walk through it to see the good news in it. I'm going to ask that you stand and follow along as I read. And I'm going to read this entire passage and then we'll dig into it to see what this passage tells us about our relationship with God, the good news it has for our guilty consciences and the distance that we feel God is. I'm, I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 13, because it's been two weeks since we've been together because of the snow. And so two weeks ago, we went through chapter 8, and it ends this way. 
in speaking of a new covenant, chapter 8, verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he, Jesus, makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so throughout the book of Hebrews, it's talking about the old covenant, the old system. And here, the author of Hebrews is saying that is all done with now. It is obsolete. And now there's this new covenant. But he goes in to explain some of the old covenant system. And we'll pick it up here in chapter 9 and read this chapter. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It would take books to speak in detail. That's Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But he gives us a few more detail. Pick it up again in 6. I love the, re- the, the realness of the Bible. Saying, I can't explain this to you for hours because you'll get antsy. So let me sum it up for you. That's verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priest goes regularly into the first section, per- per- section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year. And not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, 14 and 15 are key now, catch it, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established for a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the covenant of the blood that God will command to you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves will be 
with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. God, I pray that you would speak to us now through this passage through your word. May you work a miracle in us where we feel the nearness of God and the cleansing of our consciences. For that's what this passage holds for us and that's what we need this morning and we can't do it on our own. So we ask for you, Holy Spirit, to do a supernatural miracle in us that would remind us and show us the nearness of your presence and the cleansing, the purification of our consciences. For your glory and our good, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. What is this passage and all of its complication about blood telling us about our relationship with God? And it's, it's, a, it's a long passage. It's kind of confusing. There's a lot of things that may not make sense at first read or second read or tenth read. What is it telling us about our relationship with God? And to get that, I think we need to be reminded very quickly of the context of the book of Hebrews. And some of you may be visiting for the first time. Maybe you haven't been here for the entire series through this book. And the point of Hebrews, the author, the preacher of Hebrews, is making one consistent point throughout this book, and that is Jesus is better. He is better. He is, he is better than religion. He is better than the Old Testament prophets and priests and kings. Hebrews chapter 1 and 2 says he is better than the angels. Angels are ministering servants, it tells us, but Jesus is better. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that Moses was a great leader who led God's people out of slavery into, towards the promised land and through this chaotic wilderness years. But Jesus is a better leader. The end of 4, the end of chapter 3 going into 4, it talks about Joshua. Joshua is the one who led God's people into the promised land. And the author of Hebrews is making the point that Jesus is a better leader than Joshua, the one who led them into the promised land. Jesus leads us into the eternal promised land, the eternal rest of God. And then he says in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, which we're in the middle of that now, that Jesus is a better priest, a better high priest for us. And so he's making this theme, he's making this point, and this theme runs throughout the book that Jesus is better. And we see that really summed up in chapter 8, verse 13. He's saying, and speaking of the new covenant, that's now, the New Testament, Jesus, the Messiah has come, and speaking of this, he, God, makes the first one, the old covenant, all of this old religious practice from the Old Testament, he makes it obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so he's saying, we're moving into a new time, a new covenant, a new reality, where Jesus brings God near to us. And so I'm just going to summarize this passage with three points and we're going to dig through it. Jesus' blood, this passage is filled with imagery of Jesus' blood. Twelve times blood is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 9. And it's telling us this, that Jesus' blood gives us access to God, it purifies our dirty and guilty conscience, 
And it secures for us an eternal inheritance. So we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 9, but to see it, I want to walk through this kind of point by point. And so the first thing that happens here in Hebrews chapter 9 is the author of Hebrews takes us back to the tabernacle. The tabernacle days, the Old Testament worship. And, and the point here is he's making a point, he's reminding people that without Jesus, any religion, the Old Testament religion, yes, but any religious activity without Jesus, it will leave our relationship with God feeling distant and impersonal. Even Christian religious activity that's not focused on Jesus the Christ will leave God feeling distant and impersonal to us. But in Jesus, God is near and personal to us. That's what the author of Hebrews wants us to see, and he's bringing us into the tabernacle to remind us of this point. He goes through the first 10 verses here of chapter 9, kind of paint for us the picture of the Old Testament tabernacle. This was a place that God set up, a tent in the middle of of the camp. So God led his people out of Egypt towards the promised land. They wandered for 40 years because of their disobedience. God was teaching them a lesson and letting the first generation die off because of their disobedience. But in that, God's grace and provision for them was for his presence to be with them. He promised Moses in Exodus that he would be with him, that he would not send them forward without his presence. So God's presence was with his people, but it was in the middle of the camp and it was contained to a tent that God gave them instructions in the Old Testament how to build this tent. And Hebrews chapter 9 is summarizing that for us. That's why he says we can't go on in detail to speak about these things because it's a detailed architectural picture in the Old Testament of what this tent and tabernacle look like. But he sums it up. He says, verse 2, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. And so there was this tabernacle court, and then inside the court there was the holy place, the first section. And the, the, the symbols in the first section reminded them of the Garden of Eden. A lot of the imagery in the first section of the tabernacle was to remind them of the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God's presence was with his people before Adam and Eve disobeyed and then they covered themselves and were kicked out of God's presence in the garden, this first inner place reminded them of the Garden of Eden. And then it goes on to say, verse 3, behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place. This is the Holy of Holies. Having the golden altar of the incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that was budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, and God's presence dwelt in that place. It was contained to that place. He was in the middle of the camp, but he was contained in this place. God was with his people, But to the average commoner, if you weren't a priest, if you weren't the high priest, you could never get into his presence. His presence was distant and impersonal. Any coffee drinkers here this morning? Yes? Okay. So think about it this way. If you're a coffee drinker and as you grow into enjoying your coffee, you get better with the craft of creating your coffee, right? I mean, you start with Folgers probably or you, you put in that gross creamer stuff and then um, you go to Starbucks or Caribou and you get a mocha or something and it's all watered. It's, it's gross. No su- don't put sugar and cream in your coffee. Just get it good. So as you grow in your appreciation of coffee, 
You get beans and you grind them and you French press them or you do, do a pour over and it's glorious. You wake up in the morning and there's this aroma, this smell that draws you in, it draws you towards it. And you, you do your preparation, you pour the cup, you're about ready to take a sip and someone swats it out of your hand and says, it's not for you. That's like the Old Testament picture in relationship with God. They, he was there they could see his power at work. They could see him doing things, but they were never able to personally enjoy the presence of God and to savor the presence of God. He was contained to this tent. He was in the tabernacle. He was in the holy place, the holy of holies. But what Hebrews and what the New Testament begins to tell us now is that God has done away with that system. No longer is he contained. Look at chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. It says, but when Christ, actually the end of 10, it says, okay, so all of this Old Testament stuff, it deals with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. That's a time of change, a new day. That is now, today, the New Testament. So the time of reformation has come. It wasn't in the 1500s. It was in Christ's time. He reformed the church once and for all. He built the church and created it. Verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So this isn't the tabernacle of the Old Testament that Christ passes into. This is the heavenly realms. It's not a tent created by man. He entered once for all into the holy place, the ultimate holy place, the presence of God, perfect in heaven. He entered into that place. Verse 24 says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the high priest would pass into a tent made with hands one day a year on the day of atonement on our behalf. Jesus has passed into the very presence of God in the heavens on our behalf. Jesus is working. He has worked to bring God near. No longer is God distant and impersonal to you and I. But because of Jesus' blood, God is near. God is personal. Listen to how it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It's on page 953 in the Pew Bible if you want to look at it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are God's temple. He's speaking to the people who believe in Jesus Christ. He's saying, You are God's temple and the Spirit of God dwells in you. That Old Testament religion, any religion that isn't focused on Jesus Christ, any religious practice, any religious efforts to get near to a higher power that isn't centered on Jesus Christ keeps God at a distance and it keeps him impersonal. But because of Jesus' blood, we have become the temple of the living God and his presence dwells within us. This is good news for us, church. Here's how it hits us. I mean, oftentimes, I'm convinced that far too many of us feel that God is distant far too often. And it's a lie. 
That's condemnation from the enemy trying to keep us from God. And, and, and to try and deal with that, that distance, we, we try and clean ourselves up or we do all this moral practice or we think we need to come to church. You know, like if I go to church, the presence of God is there. Sometimes people think that God is contained into the building or, I mean, it's why people kind of get weird when they approach a worship place. My wife and I did some ministry with Mormons in college and we, we had them over to our church and they're like, can, can we walk in the sanctuary? And we're like, well, of course you can. They're, to them, it was a holy place. Like there must be something different. The presence of your God must be in that place and we're not allowed to go into their temple because their false God dwells there, Right? And, but we as Christians think this sometimes. We think if we go to a certain church or to a certain space or to a certain area that God's presence is there. That's a lie. That's Old Testament religion. That's religion without Jesus. I encourage you to gather as the church. I encourage us to gather. But it's not because God's presence is here in this building. God's presence is not in this frame. It's in this one. God's presence is in my body, in my structure. God's presence is in your body, in your structure, if you believe in Jesus Christ. And so we gather to experience a spiritual synergy. That's why the church gathers, and that's why you go to a church, not because the presence of God is hanging out somewhere here in our building. As we walk through the doors, the presence of God shows up because the spirit of the living God is in you and me. Amazing. Spiritual synergy. That's why we gather together. I'm convinced that's why our church is growing and people's lives are being changed because when people enter our fellowship, they experience the presence of God in you. Your face testifies to the presence of God. Your kindness, your compassion, your love testifies to the presence of God living and dwelling in you. If God feels distant to you, there's two reasons why. One, you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I invite you to do that here and now today. You can just admit, I'm a sinner. I believe in you. I want you. I want your nearness. And if you have done that and God still feels distant to you, it's because you're not believing the truths of the gospel. You have forgotten that God's presence is dwelling in you, that, that you are the temple of the living God and the Spirit of God is alive and active in your very life. God's presence comes to us. That's what Hebrews 9 is telling us. Church, if God feels distant, stop believing the lie. Start receiving the truth. He's in you. He's in you. Next thing that the author of Hebrews gets into is our conscience. And this is tied to the, to the presence of God. He gets into our conscience. And the point, I'm going to summarize what he's saying. We'll look at it here in the scriptures. He's saying that without Jesus, our relationship with God is muddied by a guilty conscience. It's muddied by a guilty conscience. But by Jesus' blood, our conscience is purified. Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. He says, According to this arrangement, the Old Testament religion... Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So the Old Testament had all these different systems. It had all this provision. It had all these gifts and sacrifices that were made. And it, this was how God set it up. This is the way that God ordained the, the world and true faith to work. And so he set up this Old Testament system of gifts and sacrifices. But it left the worshiper feeling condemned. It didn't, it didn't allow them to feel clean Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. Verse 7. 
says, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, with which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That phrase, unintentional sins of the people, that's referencing Numbers chapter 15. And so God set up this system where the priest would bring offerings and sacrifices into God's presence to make atonement for sins, for the unintentional sins of the people. I mean, our consciences are guilty when we sin, right? We feel the weight and the guilt of our sin. And so here, God gave them a provision for unintentional sins. Praise God, that's awesome. How many times do we sin unintentionally? I mean, we do things and say things that hurt people because we're selfish and we're self-seeking and we're self-centered and we think about ourselves more than we think about others. And so oftentimes this comes out in ways that we don't even know it. And people feel hurt by our actions, by our words. We do things that is sin. It doesn't, it, it's not in line with God's character We do things not in line with God's character unintentionally. And God in his grace made provision for that in the Old Testament. Numbers 15 tells tells us about sacrifices made for unintentional sins. Praise God, I sin unintentionally daily. Maybe doing it right now. And God has made provision for that, but in the Old Testament, there was no provision for intentional sins. In Hebrews chapter 15, near the end of the chapter, It makes the point that there is no sacrifice for sins of a high hand. Hebrews chapter 15, I think it's in verse 27, somewhere near the end of that chapter. It says that there are no sacrifices for the sins of a high hand. And what that means is intentional sins. Sins where it's it's thought out, where it's premeditated, where it's done with you knowing that it was a sin. I shouldn't look at that. I shouldn't look at that. I'm going to look at that anyway. I shouldn't take that. I shouldn't take that. I'm going to take that anyway. I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do this. I'm going to do this anyway. That's intentional sin, which all of us are guilty of. And the Old Testament tells us that there's, there's no sacrifice for that. There, there's, there's no atonement for intentional sins. We're just guilty. And we feel this, don't we? I mean, you and I, we feel guilt from our sin. We have guilty consciences. I experienced this recently with my daughter, Avery, She's six. She's beautiful and wonderful and smart and awesome, and I don't, I don't want to believe that she's a sinner. But recently there was, my, my wife, Brittany, it, she knows everything and she sees everything, and so be careful around her. <laughs> a couple, couple weeks ago, we had some friends over, and this little card by our sink, which has some verses and some different prayers by it, went missing. And so Brittany asked me where it went, and I said, I have no idea. And she says, well, did Avery take it? Do you know? I'm, I, I have no idea. I don't know what happened. So she asked Avery what happened, and Avery said, I don't know. And then said, well, somebody took it. She said, well, it must have been my friend. She blamed it on her friend. And Brittany could just see something going on in Avery. She knows. Brittany knows things. Be careful. She could just tell that it wasn't that Avery wasn't being honest. And I said, I, just believe her. Let's move on. We found the thing. Let's move on. But something was, something was different. She said, I can tell by the way Avery's acting around me that, that she did it. But she, Avery continued to tell us that she didn't. About two days later, Avery confessed. And, and when Brittany told me that she could tell that Avery did it because of the way that Avery was acting around her, I started to notice and I thought, okay, I think you're right. She is being a little bit distant. She is being a little bit shady and dodgy towards you. And then finally her guilty conscience got her. 
And she confessed. And it was a great opportunity for us to remind her of the gospel and tell her that we don't have to hide our sin because Jesus knows it anyway. And the best thing to do is confess it and to receive his forgiveness and his grace. But that's what a guilty conscience does. It pushes away the things and the people and the God that we love. Our guilty conscience distances God. It stiff arms God. And we all have this guilty conscience. The world has a guilty conscience. I mean, all the religions of the world, they try and make amends to their gods, to their higher powers through sacrifices, through gifts, through offerings, through giving to charities, through whatever it is to try and ease and cleanse this guilty conscience that they feel that they have before the Lord. Look at how Romans chapter 2 talks about the guilty conscience. It's on page 940. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Romans chapter 2, starting at verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles, that's most of us here, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This is true for all of mankind. We, we have this law written on our hearts and there is a level of cultural and subjective morality. What I mean by that is there's some things here in our culture in America that may or may not be right or wrong for us to do and there's some things in culture in India that may or may not be right in India to do but here it would be the wrong thing to do. And So there is some subjective morality but there's also this objective morality given by God, this law, this conscience on our hearts. Avery didn't feel that guilty sense of her conscience because in our home we teach that it's not right to lie, even though we do. She felt it because she knew that it was the wrong thing to do. This conscience was condemning her and it was pushing her away from one of her most important relationships with her mom. It drew, drove a wedge in their relationship. And that's how many of us sit, and that's how much of the world sits, feeling this guilty conscience. And whatever the higher power out there is, I've got to try and work really hard to, to pay for my sin, and I've got I to work it off, I, and he's distant. But Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14 tells us that, chapter 9, verse 9 again says that all of this religious duty, all of this religious sacrifice cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Right there, Hebrews 9, verse 9. It didn't work. The Old Testament system didn't work. Our religious efforts now today without Jesus doesn't work. It leaves our conscience muddied and God distant. But Hebrews 9, 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ so the blood of goats and calves didn't work. It, it was a momentary, momentary provision. But how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will it purify our conscience from dead works so that we could serve the living God? Jesus' blood cleanses our consciences Romans 8, chapter 1, later on in the book of Romans, he says, For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. So if your conscience is condemning you, you aren't trusting the blood of Jesus Christ, which has purified you. Amen? 
If your conscience is condemning you, you are not trusting the blood of Jesus Christ, which purifies you. In Jesus, we can have and we ought to have a clear conscience which allows us to approach God with confidence, enter his presence, realize his presence is within us, and our relationship with him is tight and close and vulnerable and acceptable. We don't stiff-arm God because of all the dirty deeds we did last week or last night or later today. We trust the blood of Jesus and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? Jesus, would you renew me? Jesus, help me to believe that your blood is sufficient to cleanse my conscience. And as our conscience are cleansed, it purifies us, it saves us from dead works so that we would serve the living God. So our religious duty, we ought to obey God's word, right? I'm not saying it doesn't matter how we live. But without remembering the blood of Jesus, our obedience becomes religious duty, which is done out of impure motives and doesn't work in, in helping us to foster a relationship with God. But when we trust the blood of Jesus, we realize our consciences are pure, verse 14, from dead works, so the service that we do is no longer dead, but now it's alive, and we're able to serve the living God from a pure heart, from a clean conscience with true good in mind. I mean, the world is condemned by a guilty conscience. The church, often, we live as though we are condemned by a conscience which is trying to condemn us, but the blood of Jesus is saying, you're forgiven, you're purified, now go and serve in a right way. And then the last thing that this passage shows us is that without Jesus, our relationship with God has no future. There is no future and hope in your relationship with God without Jesus Christ. But in Jesus, our relationship with God is secured by a promised eternal inheritance. Look at verse 15 through 17. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus, that's the he, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Ephesians 1.3 tells us that the promised eternal inheritance that we receive is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Those who are called by God, those who receive the forgiveness that comes through the blood of Jesus Christ, have received a promised eternal inheritance. He goes on to say, Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, for where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And so this is God communicating to humans on human terms. He's saying, we understand the last will and testament, right? I mean, as people near the end of their life or those who are prepared for the end of their life, they make a last will and testament and they leave their possessions to those that they want to leave their possessions to. But in order for that will to take effect, the person has to die. In order for my son to get my broken down Jeep, I would have to die. And so he is saying here that God is using human means to save a human people. He has made a covenant with us. He has written us into his will. And in order for us to receive the inheritance of his will, he had to die. And so he sent his son Jesus to die in our place, to shed his blood. And in that, we receive this promised eternal inheritance. Here's how, here's how that is good news for us and, and our relationship with God. 
Far too many of us and and much of the world walks around life unsure about the future. Not sure what will happen. Not sure what God thinks about me. Not sure if I die today, will I go to heaven or will I go to hell or not even sure about God at all. Just, Just unsure and that's no way to live. We can't live a a meaningful life if we're always fearing the future. We're either working hard to try and make the future happen or we're clinging to the present or looking at the past because we're afraid of what the future holds. But this passage is teaching us that in Jesus, our relationship with God is secure so that the future has no concern for us, only glory for us. That may mean death, but after death is glory, this promised eternal inheritance. I mean, think about how you live when your future is unsure. Those of you who have been in a relationship and that relationship, you could tell it was about to end. Maybe you were the one who was going to end that relationship and you weren't sure how that boyfriend or girlfriend was going to respond to the breakup. You get super weird around them, right? It's just awkward because you don't know what the future holds. You, you see, okay, I know this is coming, but I don't know how they're going to respond Or maybe you've been in an employer-employee relationship where maybe you've been the employee and you've screwed up and you're not sure if you're going to get fired. You get weird around your boss because you don't know what the future holds for you. Or maybe you're the employer who's going to have to let somebody go and you get weird around them because you don't know how they're going to respond. Without a knowledge of the future, we get weird. We live in anxiety. We live with fear. We live with doubt. This passage is telling us that in Jesus, we have no need to fear the future. God's not going to let us go. God's not going to cut us off. God's not going to kick us out. If we're in Christ, we are secured. We have been given the promised eternal inheritance, as verse 15 says. So we can walk ahead with confidence, knowing what lays ahead. Revelation 21 says that at the end of time, Jesus will return. He will say, Behold, God is with man and man is with his people. And death shall be no more and tears shall be no more and suffering shall be no more. For the former things have passed away. Behold, I am making all things anew. That's the future that awaits those who trust in Christ. And so our relationship to God is secured by the blood of Jesus. We know where we're headed in the future. We can draw near to God. He draws near to us. He's in us. And we can walk out with a pure conscience. We can serve the living God without guilt, without duty, without kind of trying to manipulate him. That's one of the things I love about God. You can't, you can't manipulate him. He knows. He knows everything. Sometimes I find myself trying to manipulate God. Like, I'm going to do these good things over here and then you're going to give me this thing that I really want or I did these bad things over here so now I'm going to do all these good things to try. And God often stops me and he's like, stop trying to manipulate me. I love you. I sent my son Jesus to die for you. Would you believe that? Would you receive his blood and would you just go live your life with me and stop trying to manipulate me? Because I love you. You don't have to manipulate me. That's our God. The blood of Jesus allows us to enter his presence. His presence enters us. It cleanses our our guilty conscience, purifies it. As verse 14 says, we're purified from dead works. And now we can serve the living God, knowing what our future holds. That's our relationship with God. Now, what about our responsibility? It's very minimal, so we'll go quick. And it's not here in Hebrews chapter 9 alone, but it's the entire context of the book of Hebrews. 
Our role is small. Jesus' role is big. He did it. He shed his blood for us. That's our hope. That's our justification. That's our salvation. What do we do? We hold fast our confession. Talked about that a few months ago in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We hold fast our confession. And and the book of Hebrews tells us to do this over and over again. This is one of the themes of Hebrews. Our responsibility. We continue to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart. And we do this together. And we keep one another accountable to believe the gospel. That Jesus' blood is enough for us. We don't do religious works. We don't come to church to receive his presence. We come to church for the spiritual synergy and to remind one another we corporately hold fast our confession. That's what we're doing now. That's our responsibility is to simply believe and confess the good news of Jesus Christ. The next thing is approach God's throne with confidence. That's in chapter 4 verse 16. We can enter his presence, the Holy of Holies. For one, the Holy of Holies is in us. The living presence of God is dwelling within us. And we can also approach God. We can pray to God. We can approach his throne in prayer with confidence. Trusting that Jesus' blood has cleansed our conscience. Our conscience and the enemy is trying to tell us we're guilty of things that Jesus says, I already covered it. Stop beating yourself up. Stop listening to the conscience that's trying to condemn you because I have said there's no condemnation for you now because Jesus' blood has purified you. So believe the gospel. Don't believe the lie. Trust that Jesus' blood purifies your conscience. And God, I ask that you would do that for us now because that's a supernatural work. Would you cleanse our consciences? You have cleansed our consciences. Would we feel the effects of that? And then trust that Jesus' blood forgives your sin. Hebrews 9, 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. This is the Old Testament law. Everything's purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The point of Hebrews is that Jesus shed his blood that our sins might be forgiven. And then lastly, persevere in the faith. This is a theme in the book of Hebrews to to hold fast, to hold fast our confession and hold fast to the faith and persevere until the end together as a community. Those who are eagerly awaiting until Jesus returns or calls us home, as verse 28 says. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he was offered in our place, he bore our sins, he shall appear a second time, he's coming again. Not to deal with sins, for sin has already been dealt with. You are forgiven, but he's coming to save, to bring us home, those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the future that we eagerly wait for. That's our responsibility. That's what we do. Jesus has done all the work, and we merely grab onto that. We hold on to that. We believe that. We encourage one another with that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going, to, we're going to respond to this with communion. There's two communion stations here and one in the back. And we'll sing a couple songs. Come and visit the communion tables when you're ready if you're in Christ. These elements are for you if you're in Christ. The bread represents his body broken for you, and the blood represents his blood shed for you. What does that blood do? I need a little feedback here. What does that blood do? cleanses our consciences. Amen. Amen. Somebody was listening. I love it. I think you were all listening, but you're Norwegians and Swedes, a lot of you, and you don't like to talk back in a sermon like this. As we come, as we drink that cup, 
Remember what Jesus' blood did for you. It cleanses your conscience. It allows you to draw near. And it is the payment that secures for you the eternal inheritance. So don't just drink the cup out of habit. But drink the cup saying, God, would you help me to feel the impact of this? I mean, the cup isn't his actual blood, it's juice. But it represents his blood. It's a way that we remember his blood. And we need to remember that, do we not, church? Daily, I feel a guilty conscience. And that's because daily, I forget that the blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience so that I can enter the throne of grace and worship him freely. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for what you've done for us. That where the Old Testament system, that where any type of religion without you leaves us with an imperfect conscience, a guilty conscience, you have shed your blood which purifies our conscience, allowing us to enter your presence and to receive your presence and to walk into the future knowing that we are secure and that we have a hope. So as we respond now by worship through song and through communion, I pray that you would help us to feel the effects of a conscience that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Where we are guilty. That's why we feel guilty. But you died and shed your blood that we could live free from guilt as we pursue you, as we trust you, as we lean into you. So I pray now as we respond that you would stir in our hearts a greater affection for you, Jesus, and a greater commitment to you. In Jesus' name, amen.